and it's going to be centered really on uh, one chapter as our foundation, uh, but we're going to be, and so in that sense, it's a topical, and topical series are very difficult to preach, uh, lots of preparation involved. Um, I don't know why pastors do it very often, frankly, because it's so much more difficult. Preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book studies is so much easier. You know exactly what's next and what's next and what's next because it's the next verses. So you don't have to plan that part of it, uh, what you're going to handle first and, and what order and, and to what degree you're going to handle things because the text uh, dictates that to you. Topical studies are a little different because now you have to correlate all of this but also have to organize it uh, in a manner that doesn't do injury to God's word and, uh, and is progressive in our understanding so we can develop what is the foundational principles versus what are those action plans built off of those principles. So we have really come off of a topical study in the bioethics paper statement that we have drafted. And so this is really two in a row, which is, and really Sunday nights have been a lot of topicals for me in the last four years or so. We've done several topicals. And so um, we're going to talk about evangelism uh, and from a different perspective because I believe we live in different times. And uh, when we go through the scriptures, if you read through the epistles, one of the things you'll notice, I think what you'll notice is the preponderance of the epistles is about the Christian life. It's really about how you ought to now believe and how you ought to now live and that is the primary focus of all the epistles. They were not written primarily to unbelievers. They weren't written to people who are on the fence and thinking about the gospel. Um, the go- at least one of the gospels was, and that was the Gospel of Luke, was written from that perspective to Theophilus, friend of God, uh, to introduce Christ. And certainly the gospels have that focal point of who is Jesus, what has he done for us, and uh, and the power of salvation in terms of its initial application. But when you go through the epistles, that's just not prevalent. Uh, And it's only in a few places, it's really relatively a very few places, that we really have, here's how to share the gospel. Here's what the gospel message is entailed. We have a lot of uh, understanding that, that the Gospels already come to most of all of the recipients of these letters. They are written to churches, they are written to pastors, they are written to individuals who are already followers of Jesus Christ, have already made that profession. Now they might be in various positions, right? Some of them might be in danger. And so we have warning books like the book of Galatians, book of Hebrews, uh, and even to a degree some of the wisdom literature of James where we are warning and, and say, be careful. Uh, we have believers that are in a condition of carnality. That is that they are living in a worldly lives. And we have First and Second Corinthians written for just that reason to address that here we have Christians that aren't being righteous in their life, in their walk. And, but it's still under the premise that these are all people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. They all make that claim. And so we don't really have a tremendous lot of information. Uh, well, here's what you need to be to get saved. And then we have uh, other letters written to deal with problems in the church or to encourage churches uh, and to strengthen them, to prepare them. And so much of the epistles is written with regard to the Christian life. And it's not written with a focal point of here's how you share Christ with others. We really go back into just going over the Gospels. Maybe in the book of Acts, we have it uh, not really defined for us, but we certainly have it portrayed for us. We have examples of here is Peter's sermon, here's Stephen's sermon, here's Paul's sermon in various settings. Uh, Many of those settings aren't really available to us. For example, Peter and Stephen, they're really preaching to people who already have a foundation in the Law and the Prophets. They already have a belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now they're defending their faith and they're promoting the, the, the person of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the expected Messiah. But everyone in the audience pretty much 
believed in God and believed in a Messiah to come. They didn't necessarily accept Christ as that Messiah, but that's what they were called to. Uh, Paul, of course, in the very brief speech on, on the Mars Hill in uh, Athens, is, an, is one example that's often set forward. His engagement with Felix and Festus in his trials we're going to be referencing over the course of this study uh, somewhat. Uh, so we have some uh, anecdotal information on sharing Christ. And I've seen people try to fashion an entire evangelism scheme or principles based upon just a few verses of the book of Acts. And, uh, and, and I'll just share a couple of those, just give you a couple examples. When we were involved, and you know I was deeply involved in Awana Clubs International, they had a video came out uh, that they had all the leadership watch, and their whole thing was that, uh, and it's really a video against lordship salvation, that it was, you accept Christ your Savior, you don't have to accept him as your Lord, and all you have to do is is uh, make this profession of faith. You just have to pray the sinner's prayer, make the profession of faith, and that is sufficient, and that's all that there is, and you shouldn't require more. And they used a, their, their primary text for out of the book of Acts, but they take them out of context. Because in the context of Acts, what do you have? You have a statement to the Philippian jailer. We have a statement uh, in various places, and it says, well, what must I do to be saved? When we have the... the uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, well, what hinders me from being baptized? Well, if you believe. Well, all you have to do is believe. Well, but that's not all the verses said. They said, well, if, if there's a context, there was a conversation for the Ethiopian eunuch, there was apparently a lengthy conversation, wasn't there, in the chariot while they were riding along. There wasn't just one phrase spoken, to, one sentence spoken from one side and one sentence from the other. There was a context of a conversation uh, when we get into uh, uh, the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Well, there was a context for that. And then uh, we also have those references with many other words. And I love that phrase, with many other words. You know, we want to focus on the one thing that was quoted in Acts, but we ignore the context where it says with many other words. And so um, that's one maluse of the book of Acts, where we have that. Uh, and again, by an organization I was very much involved in, but I found myself really reacting against that presentation that, well, you know, the gospel is just uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. That's it. Uh, and, of course, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 comes up, well, it's not by works. Well, certainly, but there should be some evidence, fruits of repentance in your life. There should be some uh, faith out works. And, in fact, the one missionary here would come to me and he says, you know, it's like he just found the verse for the first time in his life. What about this James passage? Faith without works is dead. He's like, well, that's been there for like thousands of years. You just now found that? And it's that imbalance. And, now, and he was coming to grips with the unbalanced position of that group. And so we have various abuses of those um, from various perspectives. That's just one example. Um, I could give you several other examples of other groups that have taken those messages and uh, have really perverted the message by it um, because they take it out of context and they say, well, this is the only way to share the gospel. Well, this is, this is what this man said. This is what, th in this environment, with this audience, this is what was taught. It's a record, not an instruction manual on sharing the gospel. So, so when we come to the New Testament, we understand we have a command to share the gospel. There, I'm not questioning or challenging that at all. I'm just sharing with you that overwhelmingly the New Testament uh, epistles especially, once you get past the gospels and, and the Acts being a transitional book, um, you have it almost entirely concerned about the Christian life. Now there's a couple of notable examples and we're going to certainly get into those. Um, and we do have uh, portions within there that talk about, well, here's how you heard the gospel. And here's how you responded to the gospel. And they're rehearsing the history of how the gospel. And we can learn from those, and we are going to learn from those in this study. Where we're going to draw from them and say, well, how did this portion of Rome, how did this portion, and, and so how do we deal with 
with philosophers in Athens? How do we deal with the, the servants and slaves of that, that were pretty substantial population of the early church, were slaves? How do we deal with soldiers? How do we deal with jailers and that type? Um, and we have all these various individuals, and uh, from businesswoman Lydia and, and in Book of Acts, but we also have how do you deal with a city that is given over to uh, immorality? Well, we're going to be looking at, at one specific aspect, and that is sharing the gospel in the end times. That's what we're really going to focus in on. Now, why should that be any different than any other season? Uh, well, the Bible tells us that it's going to be different. Warns us that there's going to be some difficult times. And we just got done looking at, at, at 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, and we're looking, or chapter 3, 4, about the response and how we are to continue ministering. But remember, 1 Peter 4 is really about how to minister to each other within the church. Well, how do we take that now and penetrate a society that has deteriorated to the degree that we are pretty confident we are in the end times uh, by what we are seeing in terms of the condition of man. And those passages are pretty important. We're going to be looking at several of those as we go along. And, and I see Christians responding in different ways. And I see those tendencies within myself that in my mind I'm like, well, Maybe this is the response. Maybe that is the response. Well, I think the Bible gives us a lot more uh, definition to that than just kind of uh, choosing our own way of how we're going to respond to a world that just doesn't seem to want to hear the gospel and, is, and how do we even make this happen uh, when they we're not allowed to even talk about these matters and then uh, the condition of men's hearts and lives. And, of course, we have... Plenty of passages that tell us what the world would be like. And it's not good, is it? When we look at it, it says, well, here's what it's going to be like. In the end times, uh, people will be. And we can go to 1 Timothy, to 2 Timothy, and it is a great concern of Paul. We can go into Peter's writings, and he's going to talk about that. We get into 2 Peter, especially the book of Jude. Uh, we look at John, he says, well, there's going to be many false prophets that are going to come. They're going to deceive many people. Uh, the, and the love of many will grow cold. And we look into Revelation, and what do we find in the letters to the churches? We see evidence that, well, you started out good, but the evidence along the way is that, you're, that, that, that overwhelmingly uh, churches are going to be failing uh, because they're going to be absorbing and bringing into their very worship the things that are abhorrent to God. And that's going to diminish their testimony uh, and their capacity to really reach people for Christ. And, and so we have a dual concern. And, and we've really focused in the morning, the last few weeks, on making sure that we stand. And that's going to be a, a, a very important component to what we want to study in the evening services. So um, we, how do we care for one another? How do we encourage, strengthen, build up one another to stand fast? That was what we've looked at. And we'll reference that several times in this study, I'm pretty sure. But what this study is really focused on, well, how do we take that to a world that is so antagonistic to our message? How do we do that when the Bible describes them in such horrible uh, condition? Uh, even to the point that you're, the natural man says, well... They're in that bad of a condition. There's really no hope for them. They are reprobate. And the word reprobate is that they are unsavable. They're at a point now that there's no hope for them. And so let's just, and this is, let's just uh, cloister ourselves. And that's not new to this age, right? Men have cloistered themselves to get away from worldliness. That's why they built monasteries, thank you. Uh, mono means by myself. A monastery so I can be away from the world and isolate ourselves um, and basically give up on them and so um, that tendency has been there for generations and generations within the church is well if I really want to be godly I have to separate from the world physically 
uh, not just be separate from the world, which is a spiritual condition. I'm going to be in it, but not of it. And that's a very hard thing to do, to be in the world, but not of the world. And so uh, the tendency to cloister ourselves is a strong one. Well, you know, we're going to take care of our own, and we're on the right path, and, and basically the rest of the world is on their way to hell, and we're going to leave them in that condition because they don't want to hear from us. And so there is that tendency, and I see churches taking that, and there are theologies that encourage that, aren't there? Calvinistic theologies really encourage that. They give lip service to other things, to evangelism, but they can't give any more than lip service because they have a very strong position on the reprobate person, that if you're not elect, you're a reprobate, there's no hope for you, and so I have no responsibility to you. Ultimately, they, they deny that, but ultimately that's where it ends. Uh, that if God doesn't regenerate you first, you can't be saved, and therefore I don't, you know, if I do give the gospel, it's only because I have to be obedient to this command, uh, and not because I have any hope for you. But we don't believe that. And so even in these kinds of conditions, when there are very, very, very few opportunities, it seems, or very few openings or very few that are really uh, interested in the good news of Jesus Christ, we are still commanded to go forth with that message. Uh, I would contend that there is only one time when we are permitted to be in that condition, well maybe two, but one time for sure, and that we're not even on, the, on earth at that point. So that's when, and we're going to look at that in Revelation, when the gospel goes forth with zero expectation of repentance. But it's not being preached by Christians, it's being preached by an angel. And so that's the only example I can find in God's word where there is zero expectation, and yet the gospel should be preached. Well, if that had to happen then, then it is certain that now, even though we approach the end times and there's this hardness that we are up against, that we should still have um, a desire to tell people about Christ, but also we have to recognize that our, our methodologies need to reflect and our approaches need to reflect the condition of our world. And this is going to be a little startling in a, several of these areas um, because it's going to be very demanding of us. And uh, that's why I believe the basis of suffering is such an important principle, and we're going to see how that plays out um, probably in two or three weeks, how that plays out in terms of our faith walk and our evangelism efforts, that it actually the harder and harder the world gets, the more important it is that we suffer for our faith, because we have to impact them with that kind of dramatic nature to get their attention. This is not just my preference. This is something that defines who I am. And we're going to be addressing that. So that's my introduction. And hopefully uh, gets you understanding why we are going in this study um, and the perspective uh, that we're going to uh, have uh, in our approach. And so we'll be looking at a lot of the condition of, of what we should expect to encounter, how do we uh, encounter it, and, um, and sometimes it'll be almost like a workshop where we're going to say, well, how do we address this? Um, and hopefully from God's Word and from the Spirit within us to see how we do that. And again, I do not believe that God gives us an exhaustive representation of every way there is to share the gospel. It's not its intent. It's intent to record for us the uh, sharing of the gospel that is there. But there are certain principles that we are well aware of. And we're going to be going over there them step by step because in the early part of this study, we're going to really talk about, well, we need this for evangelism to happen. And we need this, and we're going to do those in that order and see how the end times world is going to make that extraordinarily difficult to accomplish these, each of these steps, and yet not impossible. And I want that to be very clear. 
that we do not believe that the age of salvation is over <laughs> just because it's gotten because men's hearts are hardened there does come a time when god says enough uh, and i'm not i've given up there and and what's the biblical example of that happening the flood where God looks at you and says, oh, the imagination of man is wicked all day long. I'm sorry I even created them. And at that point, he just says, okay, Noah, you're the only guy. And it takes Noah 100 years to build the ark and no results. But for 100 years, he did preach. But God had really already surrendered the fact that these people are all going to be destroyed by the flood. He's going to destroy all of them save Noah and his family. And so there is biblical evidence that that comes. I just don't believe that that is now. Uh, and that is a, an important part of understanding the urgency of evangelism. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. What day are they talking about? They're talking about the church age. That this is the day. This is when the Holy Spirit is most active on the earth. Why? Why is he so active on the earth? Well, every believer is the what? Temple of the, of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As long as we are on earth, Holy Spirit is here and extraordinarily active. More active than any other period in human history. Prior to Pentecost, um, we see the Spirit's activity, certainly. I'm not saying he wasn't active, but not comparable to the church age. When it says today is the day of salvation, is the day of the church is the time when the most people can be saved. As that day comes to a close, as we see before us on the near horizon, as we see that day coming to a close, um, we don't just, say, just give up because, well, the, the outcome is... is is a foregone conclusion. No, we should increase in urgency that in the closing wee hours of this day, the last few minutes where the light is still shining, that we need to be really active. That we should be not giving up and stopping work. We should accelerate our work. And that's going to be one of the objectives of this study is to demonstrate the necessity of accelerating our work not surrendering that as though it can't do anything. That it's just too late. It's too far gone to be recovered. Um, but rather understand, we want to use the entirety of the church age, the day of salvation, even, to this, even if we are here in the last few minutes of light before the darkness comes and no one can be saved, uh, which d defines the seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath. And I would even contend outside of the nation of Israel, even into the millennial kingdom, that there is no evidence that the nations are saved during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Hence, we have the great uh, rebellion at the end of that against God through Gog and Magog. And so when I talk about the day of salvation, singular, it is the church age unlike any other time period. And again, national Israel, the 144,000 are sealed before the end of this day. Um, that's the very closing twinkle of light uh, there before the outpouring of God's wrath and the Armageddon and all of that and even the Millennial Kingdom and the end of the age or the end of this world when all things melt with fervent heat as Second Peter is going to tell us. And so we come to this and realize I shouldn't be less active I should be more active, not only internally within the church, meeting more often, praying harder, uh, ministering more, but we should be externally more active. Uh, there should be an, a, a great urgency. You're going to hear that word a lot in this study, that we need to get at the task. That doesn't mean we do it haphazardly or that we do it um, thoughtlessly, uh, but that we real, realize that there is a brevity to time and we need to be uh, redeemers of time. Get it back. Buy it back. Um, one of the main texts that I'm going to be using as a framework for our study is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So let's turn there and read that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, obviously we're going to be in a lot of passages in a topical study. But this is kind of giving me, I'm allowing 
even though I'm a topical, this is a topical study, I'm trying to use this passage as, as the outline of the guide for us. And it really stretches back into chapter 3. Uh, and, and we could certainly read, we're going to be dealing with chapter 3 as well. Um, but it's chapter 4 that's going to really guide us. And, and we're going to be looking at the context of chapter 4 in, in reference to the blindness of eyes. That is what is presented to us in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, of how the blindness has come. And for Paul, he's particularly concerned about the blindness that came to the Jews. And I'm going to use that as a premise. Well, what do we do with a community that is largely blinded to these things and doesn't want to see them? And, and so uh, we're going to be referencing that quite a bit. But let's go ahead and, well, let's go ahead and read that. I, I think that's worth, I wasn't going to do this, but let's go ahead and, and read that. Now i got to think of where we want to start. Um, let's start at verse 4. Oh, no, let's read all of chapter 3 and 4. Here we go. It's God's word. It's better to read that than listen to me yet. Here we go. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's going to be a really important statement that's going to drive us. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Isn't that great? Ministers of the new covenant is what we're calling you to. That's evangelism. Not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face, so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. That's hard-heartedness. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore... Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power of God may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. 
For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, do not, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And we're going to and then he begins talking about the resurrection and our hope and all the things that are encouraging to us. Um, so we're going to be using this as kind of the outline for how we're going to address the evangelizing the lost in this age, this period of this age. Um, and let's do a little, I want to do a little review tonight of several passages to understand what this age is like uh, so we understand the, the distinction um, and uh, particularly from Paul's perspective. But we notice, hopefully in this, that his concern is how do we deal with people whose minds are blinded to the truth, who don't want to have the, the light penetrate their darkness. They reject it on a wholesale level. And he's talking about an entire people group. He's not talking individually. He's talking about all of Israel that they were blinded, that they, even today, they read the Old Testament. And this is still true today. That they read the Old Testament and they don't see its truth. They, they try to be good Jewish people. They know they're not keeping the sacrifices. They know they're not keeping, they don't have a temple they're worshiping. They know, they know all these things, um, but they're blinded. And they know all of the prophecies about the Messiah. You go to Israel today, and there's one book of the Bible you pretty much aren't even hardly allowed to read, and one chapter in that book that is anathema. You don't even speak of it, and that's Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah 53, really from 50 all the way through about 56. They just won't talk about it. Because they know that it points to Christ. Further, this has been true all the way through church history. That the Old Testament is read and they reject what it really says. And we have been injured by that historically. And I want you to understand that. We, we have been injured because we have been made ourselves dependent upon the Jewish community to preserve aspects of the Old Testament when the ones that we are depending upon rejected Christ as the Messiah. Well, how are they going to preserve the Old Testament when they don't want Jesus to be the Messiah? Are they going to be trustworthy in that respect? Would you trust them to give you an authentic scripture? Or are they going to manipulate it where they can uh, to misdirect? And even with that effort of, the, of that group um, and how dependent the church has been upon that group and how we just keep focusing on that group. And I hear, uh, I even had a, we were at camp and I'm sitting there and someone mentions this, oh, it's, and I'm like, uh, do I want to get into this in the middle of the night at Camp Tishomingo, you know, with these young men, you know, but he, he, spouted off as some authoritarian thing, and I'm like, do you know who those people were? They were Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus. And you're trusting them to preserve for you the Old Testament. So this statement by Paul, even when Moses read then, in the first century, they were blinded to its truth. They rejected the light that was there, the glory of it, which really pointed to a to the prophet that Moses said, another prophet greater than me is going to come, him you should heed, that prophet being Jesus Christ. They rejected that on a wholesale level. And so we are coming, uh, I'm going to take that condition of Israel, uh, which has persisted uh, throughout the church age, and now say, well, now we're at the end of the church age, and now that, that 
condition is really an excellent description of all the world. That we have this incredible access to God's word unlike any other time in history. In the last half of my life, in the last 20 years, okay, I'm, I'm more than 40. All right, in the last, last 30 years, <laughs> I'll, I'll admit it, I'll embrace it. There we go. Um, the access to God's word is, is on an international basis, earthwide basis, is unprecedented. All you have to do is type in your little phone and just say, I want to read the Bible. Boom, there it is. What version you want to read? What language you want to read? How much of you want to read? Here it goes. Boom, 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 boom. And here's 5,000 commentaries on it. You got it all right in your hand. That kind of access has, is incredible. And yes, even Google will translate it for you if it's not in your language. Hit Google Translate. And I hit that a lot. Because pretty much my three-quarters of my Facebook page, I have to hit translate because I don't know what's going on if I don't do that because it's all in Filipino and, and Tagalog and, and uh, Swahili and all these other languages. So I have to, and I don't know any of them. So I'm lost without Google Translate. And I know that it's not very accurate because of, <laughs> I know they wouldn't talk like that. Anyway, we have this access but access does not equal acceptance, nor does it equal interest. We have the opportunity, but no one is affording themselves that opportunity. Now, we have some exciting things happening. We're going to be talking over the course of this of what is transpiring in some societies that uh, give us real encouragement that the gospel is still going out. And we're going to be talking about the traversing of the gospel across the face of the earth, particularly from the east to the west, and that that is coming to its conclusion. That if you look at the movement of the power of uh, what we would call um, great conversions or um, revivals, I don't know why we use that because we're not, but we use that term, but where the gospel has really penetrated entire uh, countries in a very uh, evident manner that that is really coming back to the Holy Lands now. That, that, that we're, we're coming to full cycle and it's taken all these centuries but it's coming back to full cycle and some of the greatest movement of the gospel right now are in places that are very close to uh, Jerusalem now uh, among uh, particularly um, Muslims. There's a hard group did it, huh? Um, but yet that's what's going on. And so um, we have an expectation of blindness. They have access, but they don't want to acknowledge it. They might even read it, but they are going to reject it. And they're going to do it in a very arrogant manner. The people that Paul are talking about are the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the people who are good students that know the Old Testament. They're the ones that are reading it in the synagogue. They're the ones communicating it. And they're the ones, the rabbis. They're the ones that are rejecting its power, its glory. They are the ones that are rejecting Christ. They are the ones that are diminishing and trying to snuff out the light of the gospel. So we're not talking about people who don't know it. We're talking about even people who have great access to it. And so we have... Um, apostate churches all across the world now that are, that are doing exactly what Paul was seeing done in the Jewish community, in the synagogues in his day. And that is they are taking God's word, perverting it, and thus snuffing out the light of the gospel in the process. And that's why we're going to be looking at the whole idea that we um, don't handle the word deceitfully. That's going to be one of the main premises that we're going to go through. Well, I've got about five minutes. I was hoping for about 15 to do this. Let's look at what the world's going to be like at the end times that might make us say, well, we might need to be a little more thoughtful about how we share the gospel. I grew up at the end, really, of the period of time when we still had, uh, how should I put this, a lot of liberty and a lot of open doors to share the gospel in this country. 
Uh, and we, we are kind of the closing period of that, uh, the 60s, 70s, into the 80s even a little bit, where we were still doing door-to-door -door evangelism. We were still having crusades. I, as a young person, went to evangelism crusades. I was a believer. And I remember going to the tent in Roanoke, Virginia, and for a week of meetings. And, and um, I took my date. And yes, I didn't have, I, I didn't know Joyce yet, okay? So it wasn't her. And, and that was what we did for that night, was we went to the, to the tent meetings. And, and, uh, and so that age really came to a close there in my teen years. And then, but there's still some openness where we could still penetrate. And we had uh, the moral majority, we had the Jerry Falwell, we have all of this, and really the rise of the televangelists were in that period of time, in that 70s and 80s, and stretching in the 90s, and, and early on it wasn't perverted as much, but then it became that, and so the, the prevalence of, of anticipating that as you go out the gospel, it will be respected, you'll be respected for bringing it to them, They'll, there'll be a general openness of even the politicians and the businesses to you doing it, even your employers would uh, allow that. Uh, something I saw when we were in the Philippines two years ago, um, that we were, you know, one of the places I went to speak was uh, an employer that says all my employees are here for devotions. Okay, they're about 30 years behind us. <laughs> where we still had, and I, you still had that access point where you could go in and talk to even an unsaved guy and he recognized the value of you preaching to his workers and actually paying them to listen to you for half an hour once a week. Can you imagine that? But that's what was going on when I was a young person. Well, that's not happening today, is it? <laughs> now you're not allowed to speak about those things. And so these things about God's Word, now we're having prohibitions on that rather than encouragement of them. That's how much has changed in my lifetime. So... Uh, and we're seeing this not only here, but in many other places throughout the earth. And even to some degree uh, on, a, on another whole level these last two years. So let's go to Timothy. I've referenced that, so let's go there. First of all, um, we'll hit both of the main passages. One in 1 Timothy, one in 2 Timothy. And with this, we'll close tonight so we can understand. In 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says, and that's a very strong phrase there to start us right off with. Um, this is not hidden. This is very clear that the Holy Spirit, even in the first century, made it very clear that, that the opportunity to share the gospel is limited to this period of time clearly or expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused to receive thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word, of, by the word and prayer." If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness profits for all things, having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we labored and suffer reproach. I want to get to that point. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe these things, command and teach. And then uh, I'll just jump down uh, where he, <clears throat> that he is to um, take heed to his doctrines and, and to lay it to the gift that was given to him. And, and later on he tells them to do not neglect the, the work of the evangelism. So what are we expecting? Well, this is mostly internal 
that we're going to walk away from the truth. They are depart from the faith, which means that they had a knowledge of the faith. They're departing from it, and they are embracing doctrines of demons. They are embracing fables. They are embracing all these things that, that, that are lies, and they are propagating those, and they are not even living according to that. There is a great hypocrisy. And so we find that it's cloud coming over the church at the end times uh, that is a hypocritical cloud. It is an, uh, uh, it's not just an accusation against the church. It is a founded accusation. That means it has evidence that these people are not the real article. And the world knows it, and you should know it, and we should be able to identify them, and we should separate ourselves from them. But the impact of these people on the gospel is profound. Because they're... And so they make it all these other things. They... they um, make it about keeping the law. They make it uh, about uh, <laughs> forbidding to marry. I mean, we've got all these things that take away the goodness of God. They take away godliness, genuine godliness, that goes from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so this is what Paul wrote about in Galatians, what we see in other passages throughout Scripture uh, that calls us to have an internalizing of truth that then exudes itself in righteous living. And these people have rejected that. They have profaned it. This is what we are expected. This is what we are told. This is confirmed by John. There's going to be many false Christs that are going to come. Uh, do not follow after any of them. Uh, Jesus Christ warned about that in, in Luke and Matthew. We're going to be looking at both of those passages later on in this study. And so we have all of this laid out for us here. Let's go on now. And a second Timothy, verse, chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days, and again, very similar to what he just told us in, first, in the first letter, this is something he wants to keep hammering away, that, Timothy, if you're going to be ministering, and if you endure to the last days, we don't know how long the church age is in Paul's time, but uh, he's really writing to Timothy for our benefit. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. That is, that they are dangerous, right? And so are you ready for perilous times, times of stress, stressful times? For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure and lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying his power from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households, make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, we're going to study that later on. So do these resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they'll progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, and hap which happened to me, Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things of which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, right, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, keep going, I have to go two more verses. I well, really, three or four. I charge you, therefore, before God and Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. And so we have this, and this is going to be a really important passage. This is the, this is the companion passage with 2 Corinthians 4 is 2 Timothy 4. And so we have this laid out for you. What is our response? 
Is our response to curl up in a ball <laughs> and wait for Jesus' coming? No. Our response at the end times, even under these horrible conditions, is to press on, to pursue their truth. But notice the parameters, because those are what we're going to be studying. What are the parameters of what we should be doing, and then what are the expectations, and what are the mechanisms that are going to be uh, best employed, we'll put it like that, best employed uh, to... Uh, engage people during this kind of a period of time. And that's what we're going to be studying. And I hope you pursue this with us along this uh, road. I can't tell you how many weeks it's going to take to get through this. Um, I, have, I have about uh, seven weeks of outline done. Um, so, and I'm, so I don't know. I don't know if I'm halfway. I might be halfway there. So it'll be a few weeks. They will be going through this and um, months, okay, months. Um, but please pursue this with me. And on a few occasions, I'm really setting it up as a workshop. I'm trying to do that. Um, and I'll let you have notice at a time for that. Okay, let's have a prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, even for its warnings and this seemingly very bleak outlook, and yet you've called us to action and not to cloistering. And Lord, we pray that we might uh, take heed, recognize the days we live in, and the challenges that they present us, and that our trust is really not in a certain methodology, that our trust is really not in our own uh, wisdom. Our trust is in you, the power of your Spirit, that even as your Spirit has warned us about these days, that he is still present in us, and we still trust him to direct us and to give us the words to speak and the manner to speak them and the, and the um, ability to continue to shine your light into the uh, deep darkness that we see around us and engulfing so much of the world. And Lord, we pray that uh, you might see this bear fruit in our lives, in our church, and even in the lives of lost people that we encounter in the days, weeks, months to come. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.